Hello, and welcome back to the Self Healer Soundboard. This week's episode, we are diving back into our workbook, How to Meet Your Self. If you've been following along the soundboard for the last couple of months, then you may have noticed that we've been peppering in episodes specifically dedicated to the workbook and its practices. So we've been going through from front cover to back cover and are currently on section three, Meet Your Emotional Self. Now, if you do have the workbook, we, of course, invite you to follow along with us. Today's episode is beginning from page 114, Meet Your Ego. We're going to spend the next few episodes diving into the ego and ego work, ego practices, and our own personal journeys with the ego. If you do not have the workbook, no worries. That is intentionally why we have created these episodes so that we can take all of this work and practices and expand the conversation off of the workbook really and around the globe so that you too have access to this information and these tools. So as we get ready to dive into ego work and first beginning by meeting our ego, it'll be really helpful that we all understand what the ego is. And if you're a regular listener or have tuned into past episodes, particularly around conversations about conditioning, our early childhood experiences, maybe even our inner child, you probably have heard me refer to the state of awareness that we're all born into as human infants. We're born into an objective state of being where we're experiencing the world, not only outside of us, our external environment, We're experiencing the internal world, the shifts and changes in our physiology, the thoughts in our mind. And our mind in particular is always seeking to make sense of our experiences, to understand them. So what it does, it assigns meanings, it interprets our events, and of course, it utilizes the people around us, our caregivers in particular, to help us make sense. And so what our ego then is, the simplest definition that I think would be helpful for us all to understand is the ego is the part of our mind that holds our identity or really the idea or beliefs we have about who we are. It also holds ideas or beliefs we have about who others are and the world around us. What do we believe about the world in general? Now, of course, these aren't objective Facts. I want to be clear about that when we're talking about these interpretations, because they're coming from people outside of us, colored by their own conditioning and their own subjective or individual opinions about their experience of us in particular. These aren't facts, though, because we're developmentally immature, we don't have that mature understanding of life, of these emotions or sensations within us, or how to make sense of the world. We defer to the stories that we're hearing about us, to the interpretations, to the you know ways we're described by other people, and we absorb them as our truth. And they become fixated in our mind, again, as a story, this identity of who we think we are, again, not based in facts, but based in our past experiences. There's a word in there that you just used, which I love because it creates a visual, and that word is absorbed. And as children, you've heard us say many times, and very likely I've heard many people say, if you're in this sort of line of work and healing or awareness, as children, we come into the world as sponges. We are 
soaking in and absorbing everything that is around us. We are interpreting the world through that absorption. So through the beliefs, the interactions, the emotions, the behaviors of all those around us, not just our parent or parent figure, but other caregivers, other close family members, siblings, other adults who are around us or in our community. And in that absorption process, we come in as this beautiful little newborn, we start to absorb and take on through that process, the separation between newborn baby human and all of this outside belief and emotion, habits, behavior, conditioning starts to dissipate. It starts to form together. And over time, over years, as we become adults, we lose awareness of the separation or of this space. So in meeting our ego, we are revisiting space that isn't newly there, space that was there and has been there all along, but likely the space that so many are unaware of, that you, yes, have an ego, though you are not your ego. One of the contributing factors that space shrinking so quickly lives in the subconscious part of our mind where our ego lives, which is its desire for familiarity or for predictability. We love to be able to anticipate what comes next, even if it has to do in terms of with our identity of who we think we are. So the reason that that distance shrinks is because Anytime we have a new experience where that interpretation, often at times, right, subjectively given by someone else, any times are somewhat similar or a similarity in that type of experience or the type of relationship that we're you know, involved in in that moment, our ego, our subconscious mind stored in that ego, our subconscious mind in that moment will automatically group it together with all similar type experiences, making that narrative or that particular interpretation being the only one that might apply. And when we continue to restrict any other possible interpretation because of the similarity of events before quickly, very long, we do see that shrinkage in space where we quite literally or so we think, we've become this created identity. To your ego, that space is very threatening because that space shows that there is a separation. Mm -hmm. Your ego believes and mm -hmm. wants to be and needs to be the almighty, the, the one at the top of the mountain who is directing and leading all. So when you become aware of this space and become aware that the space is between the ego and authentic self, that's very threatening, threatening the very existence to the ego itself because there is another entity at play. There is in fact the greatest entity at play that is the core of all of it that is our authentic self. So when we speak of that space, we're creating space from the authentic self, which is the embodiment of that whole complete newborn child that came in with a complete authentic self. And then the space in between that gets blurred and shrinks over time to the ego. So a really great way to create this separation in ego work is to name your ego, to actually give it maybe a human name, uh, a fun or a playful name. Nicole's in the book uh, you can read has named hers Jessica over the years. I think sometimes it, it could switch. You don't have to be designated to a specific name. 
Mine, for some reason, has just been innately Rachel. <laughs> I don't know if that is connected to the show Friends and that <laughs> character and this sort of like just a never ending thought stream where a lot of the time, even this morning, I was thinking about this episode and I remembered how I named my ego Rachel. And the first thought that comes into my mind always is like, Rachel, aren't you free? Aren't you exhausted? It's just exhausting and taxing to listen to her go. So (laughs) even this way, like Nicole's giggling a little, I'm over here talking about this invisible ego I have named Rachel. (laughs) Though that it's helpful and it's also so healing and so powerful to integrate this playfulness, which in itself is very foreign and very unwelcomed by a lot of people because it feels very unsafe. There's a level of vulnerability that we need to allow ourselves to be at to have enough safety to allow ourselves to play. So even if this causes a bit of discomfort, in fact, if it does cause discomfort, that's golden. That's really great because things are stirring up. You're resonating. You're pinging things within. So try giving your ego a name. If you are following along on the comments or engaging in our comments, I should say, on social media or our YouTube channel or on the podcast reviews, feel free to drop your ego name or stories also into those comments. We love hearing from you guys and what your take and your experience of these parts of ourselves are. I think uh, the reason why I'm able to laugh and giggle uh, at this point in my healing journey, of course, around my ego, and it didn't feel like that in the beginning is, you know, humor and laughter can come when we're able to accept the presence of something and even more so accept the adaptive presence of something. Because when we're having a discussion about the ego, meeting our ego, doing ego work, I think naturally many of you listening have might have heard um, the myth or the point of ego work being told to you that it's to kill the ego, giving most of us the idea that the ego is a bad thing to be avoided, definitely not anything to laugh at or to you know joke or even acknowledge that we have within ourselves. So the reality of it is I've yet to meet a human who doesn't have this constructed mental identity because there's a protective value to having it. Because in our childhood environments, whatever they looked like for each of us with whomever it was that was present or not present, there was a safety in this constructed identity that again, subconsciously, we seek to Validate, And when we understand then that it's adaptive, that our goal isn't to remove this thing that we need, then some of us can welcome in, you know, jokes, levity, and the ability, first and foremost, to accept that we do have this part of our mental landscape. Yeah, it's there. So it's whether or not we want to accept that it's there. I think every human being does have an ego. And I believe that because every human being also has free will. And ego and free will are two opposite ends. They are contrast to each other. It's black and white. Ego is a very conditioned, boxed in mindset, if you will, or absorption where free will is, it's yours. It's your freedom. It's your calling. It's your intuition. So you're going to have both. That's what makes us, I think, uniquely human. Whereas we are natural beings. If my body were to stop working today, eventually it would break the matter of it. Actual physical matter would break down and go back into the earth and the soil because I am a natural being. And so are you. So when we look at the natural world and how how harmonious and naturally flowing it is, the one thing the natural world does not have is ego. 
it also doesn't have free will. You don't see the trees and the plants and the birds picking up and talking about where they're going to work next or where they're going to move or why their marriage is failing. They're just in their flow. So without ego and free will, we just have pure nature. We as humans are pure nature with this uniquely human experience of both ego and of free will. So a great visual to help you understand this experience of ego and how many people, most people, live their lives until becoming aware. And a little footnote there, it's not bad to live your life this way. Nothing that Nicole and I ever speak is ever going to be on some morality or that Nicole and I ever speak is going to be on some spectrum of morality. None of it is right. None of it is wrong. None of it is good. None of it is bad. It simply is. So most of us in the it simply is arena are going through life driven by this unconscious autopilot subconscious ego. Imagine being in a car with your ego in the driver's seat steering you through life, making the left turns, the right turns, calling all the shots, choosing the speed. You, your authentic self and the being of you is in the passenger seat blindfolded. Most likely just letting is in the passenger seat blindfolded while the ego runs the show. So our work here in becoming aware in creating this space in separation is not to start fighting the ego in the driver's seat or grab the steering wheel. It's to honor that they're there. Maybe say hello. I'm going to say, hey, Rachel, I'm here now too. And softly begin getting the steering wheel back into your own hands by befriending the ego. You befriend the ego by first validating and acknowledging its sheer existence and then creating an understanding or beginning the acceptance that its sheer existence was also there to protect you. The ego is not some villain in that driver's seat trying to crash you. That may be what it's doing for most of us, though what it believes it's doing is making all the safest turns and directing you on the safest path, which just happens to be the path that keeps you very small, keeps you in a conditioned path of the past, and creates more of the same. It doesn't want new. So that ego in the driver's seat is a lot of the reason many of us see the same patterns happening over and over, or wondering why we find ourselves in the same relationship over and over and over again. It's largely... it. It's very likely it's because we've been unaware that our authentic self, one, we're unaware that our authentic self is even a thing that exists, and we're unaware that there is some other entity of us that is so powerfully and subconsciously overtaking all of our outward habits and patterns and behaviors. I absolutely love that that visual, Jenna. So thank you for sharing it with us all. And I want to go back to uh, the little side note that you gave all listeners, um, acknowledging the validity of our ego and you know offering the space then for anyone who might observe themselves criticizing or even being shameful if they do notice the presence of this ego and going down that very black and white deterministic path. This is right. This is wrong. This is good. This is bad. And the thing I want to make a statement on right here right now is to acknowledge that even that tendency to separate things into those categories, right and wrong, good or bad, is actually a function of our ego. Why is it a function of our ego? Because our ego, right, is our constructed identity. And it likes to feel a 
affirmed in that identity. So the quickest thing, and subconsciously we make snap judgments, we group things. It's easier to categorize things into two categories, black and white, right and wrong, or whatever it might be, than to allow for all of the nuance and complexity of our natural human experience. So to make decisions as quick as our subconscious mind would like in favor of always keeping us right physiologically or physically safe, those black and white categories are our go-to. So anytime we see in our mind's eye that you know tendency to determine, I'm right, you're wrong. In arguments, we do this all the time. Or this is good, this is bad. We like to throw these categories on everything and anything at all. That's in our sense of preser. That's coming from a sense of preservation, right? If I if I need my identity to be inf- affirmed in whatever way it is, then I need to make someone outside of me wrong, bad, the opposite of me. So as we're diving deeper into, we have a name for our ego, right? We're creating this separation. Now, instinctively, the next point of exploration needs to be, well, what is this identity? What am I defending at all costs and making everyone around me wrong if they say or do or feel something in opposition? What is this identity? And for those of you, again, who are following along in the workbook, I'm speaking now from page 115, and I'm referring to the I am exercises. And there's two ways to begin this exploration into, okay, what what is in this identity? What have I come to believe I am, or maybe others are, or the world around me is? So focusing first on the I am statement. Some of us might decide to set a timer or carve out, you know, a couple minutes in our day in a meditative experience, maybe closing our eyes, maybe as we're, you know, walking in nature, bringing up the concept of being a natural being and begin to first ask ourselves the question, who am I? And without shaming whatever comes to mind, without judging whatever comes to mind or body, whatever feelings come up, allowing yourself in that exploratory space just to be, maybe journaling in a notebook, whatever it is that comes to mind when you ask yourself that question, resist the urge to judge what comes up so that you do have space to explore what it is that is coming up for you and explore who am I? Now, this is something we can do alone outside of our daily interactions with other people. The second part then is to begin to observe in our mind's eye all of the thoughts throughout our day. What are the typical ways that I think about myself throughout the day? Again, jotting down in a notebook, maybe taking several days at a time to explore our internal world. Notice the thoughts. Notice how you think about yourself, how you describe yourself to yourself in your mind's eye or in your mental dialogue. And also notice, so these are the two things we want to notice. How am I thinking about myself? How am I describing myself to myself And how am I describing myself to others? So then begin to expand that awareness or that witnessing practice and begin to notice not only what's going on in your mind, begin to notice what's coming out of your mouth. When you're talking to your friends, when you're talking to strangers on the internet, when you're talking about yourself, how is it that you're talking to yourself? Again, resisting the urge to criticize or judge and noting down maybe in a notebook everything that comes up for you in those descriptors. How are you describing yourself to others when it is that you're talking about yourself? A loving reminder to everyone doing this work that as you go through this I am exercise and ask yourself the question, who am I? Or begin to notice all of the I am statements that we are making countless times through our days and our weeks to remember to keep that voice of that wise, loving, nourishing inner parent 
close by. It's very easy and very programmed for many of us to go right into an egoic judgment Mm -hmm. of the I am statements that we are practicing observing. So this, again, creates another opportunity to kind of do two things at once, because as you're exploring this, you also always, in any work, in any of these inquiries or exploratory questions or reflections, you have the opportunity to be reframing your voice in those moments. Even if you hear yourself say, even if you do notice yourself, start to shame or judge or tear yourself apart, allow that to even be. Practice not making that wrong. Practicing being in simply being, allowing all that is there to simply and neutrally be there. If you are noticing those critical thoughts, those shameful voices come in, then allow them to be. And maybe for each one, insert in that moment some love for yourself. It's okay. It's okay that this voice is here. This comes from a wounded place. I'm doing this work in honor of myself. I am safe now. I do love myself now. I am worthy of this work. It's going to look a little different for everyone, but still all throughout the day, my greatest practice is being my own best friend. And I don't just become my own best friend one day and say, all right, well, I'm locked and loaded for the rest of my life and then never revisit it. If I have an outward actual best friend that's another human and we become besties and then I just never talk to them again, I never send them love, I never check in, there's no connection, well, then that person isn't really there. The same goes with our relationship and friendship with ourselves. So in all of this reflection and inquiry, remember that you always have access to this tool of your wise, loving inner parent that for many people was not an actual voice in our childhood. So it takes moments like this to softly and lovingly begin integrating and whispering that voice in as we go. Specifically because we do grow or have grown up in a society that functions on black and white thinking. It functions on the systems of ego. We learn good, bad. We learn pass, fail. And I'm not making all of this wrong. I know that we need measurements to to honor certain things or to mark milestones or do things long-term or to build things. They're not bad. However, we don't need to create more ego and more morality for things. And it is helpful to just understand that the system we've been built upon as a collective culture is not that of intuition and nuance and following your heart. It's quite the opposite, which is why it sometimes feels so challenging and so foreign to begin becoming aware and connect to these deep desires of our heart or our authentic self and our authentic expression, because we are all currently in a collective world where that new expression coming out does not fit in the box that all of our current society and systems were created within. Before we get ready to continue our ego exploration or ego work and witnessing our ego in action, Um, Another quick note here, I really want to emphasize taking time and patience um, with the meet your ego exercises, Um, because for many of us, it doesn't, you know, we don't come to the realization of 
who or what our identity is immediately. So really giving ourselves the patience and the space, um, committing maybe to more than one moment to explore that I am exercise with yourself, meaning make it a daily habit, spending some time witnessing our ego, not only within our own internal world, but in action throughout our day, really creating the time and space in our very busy lives to do that um, and being patient with ourselves as we do. And then as we get clearer and clearer in terms of what it is that our ego, the identity that our ego has constructed for us, the next space we can begin to witness is our ego in action day in and day out. For those of you following along in the workbook, Jenna and I will be speaking or reading the exploratory prompts now on page 116 and 117. And the prompts that we're going to be reading out aloud in just a few minutes um, are questions that we can begin to ask ourselves and observe in our actions and our interactions throughout our day. This will give us the ability to witness now this constructed identity, how and when it is impacting how we're showing up in the world, sending us back in for many of us to those older reactive cycles. So some points to explore for ourselves, and I suggest maybe hitting pause, grabbing a paper, a pencil. You can write these down. These are coming directly from the workbook. Again, it is page 116 and 117. One thing we can begin to notice, think, take some time, imagine, or maybe explore in real time a moment when someone disagreed with your beliefs or your opinions. Now we have beliefs and opinions in so many areas from religious to political to spiritual to just general preferences. So this can include any time, any moment where you're hearing something from someone else or even just thinking of a past moment where you heard something in opposition to what you felt to be true. Take a moment now, explore for yourself, notice in real time even How is it that you are feeling when you hear this point of disagreement? How is it that you are feeling? And then explore a bit further. How is it that you react? What do you do next? Again, when someone disagrees with your beliefs or with your opinions. Another great question to begin to explore with ourself. When you hear a new belief, so now this doesn't necessarily have to be anything you even agree or disagree with. It could be new. You don't yet know even what you feel about this. Maybe it's a new idea you haven't even heard of before. So when it is that you hear a new belief or a new idea that you are not familiar with, how do you react? How do you feel internally? Do you feel open? Do you feel curious? Do you feel interested? Do you then ask more questions or Do you feel overwhelmed? Do you feel reactive? Do you feel explosive? Do you feel like you have to demand that that person is is wrong and even teaching you a new idea? Or do you feel shut down, completely disinterested, disconnected, not even engaged with it at all? Another point of exploration, again, coming directly from the workbook. Think of a recent time or observe a recent time when someone comes to you with an issue that they are struggling with whether it's a friend, a romantic partner, a family member, a colleague, a stranger on the street, whatever it is. Think of a time when someone came to you with an issue that they were struggling with and notice what it is that you did. How did you respond to their issue? Did you bring the conversation back to yourself or maybe your own issues saying things like, well, I would have never done that. Or maybe on the other hand, well, if I were you, I would. 
Another version of this looks like, well, the last time this happened to me, I did, right? Bringing that focus back to I, or in that moment of sharing of emotional vulnerability, someone is sharing an issue with you, bringing a concern, were you instead able to actively listen to their perspective without inserting your own? Another point of exploration or question to begin to ask or witness within ourself, begin to notice how often and under what circumstances you are thinking or you notice yourself thinking things like, I should be doing X, Y, or Z, whatever it is, something that you're not doing in the current moment. How present are those shoulds? How often are those shoulds present? And when are those shoulds present? When are you in judgment of what it is that you are doing in favor or an expectation that you should be doing something else instead? Before we continue on to the next page on 117, I just want to go back to one of these questions that you just read, Nicole, um, about thinking of a recent time when someone came to you with that issue that you're struggling with. And as you are, everyone who is listening and watching this, as you are beginning to practice this observation of yourself, witnessing yourself in interaction with other people, this is again an opportunity to cultivate and embody kindness with yourself. Because a lot of the time we go to relate to someone else's story and immediately bring it back to ourselves as a means to find relatability or to find resonance, to say to the other person, I see you, I hear you, I get that, I understand that. So it's not malicious intent. It actually does come from a good intention and a a good place in our hearts. Though this is the almost a gray area where we do have to continue this kindness and this lovingness to ourselves so that we are not immediately shaming ourselves and thinking, oh, how egoic am I? I bring everything back to me. And creating space to see that it's not necessarily about you bringing it back to you. It's about the fact that most of us aren't actually authentically or actively listening to another or holding listening space because we are hearing them, but thinking about our own experience and emotions and reactions to what they're saying while they're saying it. Where if we're genuinely and actively, authentically listening to someone from our heart, then we are an empty space and everything they say just comes over here and they feel completely heard. But a lot of us go through conversations, having a conversation with ourselves about the conversation that someone else is having with us. So remember that integrated throughout all of this work, throughout all of your healing practice is the voice of your wise, loving, nurturing inner parent that is already within and is there to be this soft whisper when you do make these observations and go immediately into this conditioned wormhole of shaming yourself and how awful you are. Even that in itself is such valuable golden feedback because right there, there were three I am statements. Mm -hmm. I'm so selfish. I'm so awful. Mm -hmm. That's valuable for me to remember. There's that separation. Well, it's not I, it's not me. That is awful. There is me. There's an authentic self in Jenna over here. And then there's this voice in these I am statements and sabotage and shame that is my ego. So even when we have that sort of self tear down and that critical self talk, that's really great feedback for yourself. So keep that loving voice at the ready in your back pocket and 
integrate it, practice it, bring it to the surface throughout all of the work that we are doing here. So to finish off these questions for witnessing your ego in action, we're on page 117. If you have the workbook, remember, if you don't have the workbook, worry not. We are reading these directly from it so that you can rewatch this, write it down, record it, whatever works best for you. So the question at the top of the page, how often and under what circumstances do you do things to appear a certain way to people in your daily life on social media? For example, taking a vacation so that you can post about it, taking a new job because it will give you social validation, buying a house that's actually financially stressful or maybe that you cannot afford, but you do it to impress friends and because you've conditioned to meet that mile marker that you're successful when you get your first home. Start to notice throughout your day the choices that you are making, the things that you are doing and the experiences that you're having and choosing and what they're rooted in. Are they rooted for something external? What if nobody saw or heard any of the vacations that you took, the job that you took, the house that you bought, any of that? And those are just three big core things that are common amongst us, though of course there are millions upon millions. So if no one saw or heard or knew about those things, would you still have done them? Are they authentic to you? Are they authentic to your heart and your being? Again, it's not that all these perfect answers are going to come rushing to you. This, as Nicole mentioned earlier, is a space to be in patient inquiry. It's a space to just immerse ourselves in these questions and start swimming in the questions. Eventually, we'll start treading water, we'll start getting some grounding, and we'll start to have the answers emerge for us. Next question. When someone gives you feedback on something and you feel uncomfortable, how do you typically react? Do you become defensive? Do you take deep breaths and try and listen to the information? Maybe you take a deep sigh and you're just present and let it in. Do you shut down and spiral into a critical self-talk? Do you begin to belittle yourself? Do you immediately take their feedback personal and that it means something about you and how you haven't met up to their expectations? How do you respond to others' feedback? Next question. When you make a common mistake, like being late for a meeting or losing your temper, which is common, we are all human, or forgetting to run an errand, these little things throughout the day, how do you typically speak to yourself? Do you think or say things like, I'm such an idiot, I deserved to be fired, I never get anything right? What is your self-talk like? For anyone who uses public transit or lives in a city, this was such a big one for me. In all of the cities I've lived, I always used public transit. Before I became my own best friend, which has been almost a decade in the making of intentional work to befriend myself because I was cruel to myself. I was my own mean girl times a thousand. When I would go to catch a bus or a train and I missed said bus or train, the litany and firestorm that came at me from myself, the belittling, the tear down, the of course you did, of course you screwed it up again, was just so rampant. These are those moments that we're talking about. Say you drop something on the ground or maybe you get covered in dirt or you cut yourself. What's your immediate reaction? Do you go to shame yourself? Do you go to punish yourself? How do you speak to yourself? 
And last question in the witnessing your ego in action section. When you try something that is unfamiliar to you or that is new and feels uncomfortable, how do you react? Are you able to work through the, I'm not good at this stage and keep trying, or do you give up? A really real time example of this is listening to this episode, even naming your ego at the beginning of the episode. Pretty much all of our work in conversation lives in the realm of discomfort. It is new. It is not in the boxed, structured, systematic society that we all have been raised in. It is more open. It is more free. In that is a world of discomfort. All of our healing, our growth, our transformation resides in that discomfort. So when we learn new things or discover new things, even as a society, we get very activated. We see it in these conversations, in these episodes, and hear some of your feedback and comments that do cause a lot of activation. Sometimes there's upset, sometimes there's resonance, but there's an ignition there because there is a newness. So there's a lot of emotion that's being fed by this past history that's coming out in a very activated way at all this new threatening information that is coming into us. So it's a really great space to just notice anything new that comes into your life and your day. This ties into those new opinions opinions or opposing opinions. How do you speak to yourself when that happens? How do you respond? How do you react to the discomfort of expanding newness? Very interestingly, and bring this conversation really beautifully full circle. I mean, at the foundation of a healing journey, creating change, right? Making new choices is a challenge to our ego, right? We have this identity constructed, all of these beliefs and a lifetime of, you know, validation and affirmation of security in that one way of being. And anytime we're presented with new information, even possible new choices that could allow us to create a life that's different than that past in and of itself, it's going to activate us in some way. It's going to be a resistant moment because we're not going to embrace the logical nature of this new information or this new choice. We're going to be reacted again from that ingrained ego, that identity that inherently, implicitly, and immediately feels challenged by that. And then the reaction most of us tune into is that safety-seeking reaction of the ego at the wheel, right? With the blindfold, us blindfolded in the passenger seat, reacting to create safety, safety simply based on familiarity. So very much so healing is ego work in and of itself because what we are doing through the healing journey and stringing together new choices is quite literally we are constructing a new identity for ourselves that then will over time be reflected outward in our choices, in our relationships and in the world around us. On that note, um, because the ego is such a big topic, we will be continuing this conversation in future episodes. So as Jenna mentioned earlier in this episode, we are looking forward to hearing feedback, assuming that this might be new information for many of you. What is your initial reaction hearing about this concept of ego? And of course, for those of you diving deeper into the trenches of ego work, we'd love to hear your ego's name and what you are observing or witnessing in and of yourself as you're beginning to see your ego in action. As always, looking forward to continuing this conversation with each and every one of you on next episode.